The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. Share your story. 416-870-6400. This is the Employment Law Show. Toronto's News. Today's Talk 640 Toronto. And welcome to the show. Good to have you along. John Schools here. And in the other side of the uh, the desk today is going to be our good pal, Chris Justice, courtesy of San Fury to Mark and LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in the country. Chris is ready to answer your questions right now. You want to email help at employmentlawyer.ca. And always a reminder on this show is uh, not just now, but all week long, that if you want to reach out and have more information, learn a bunch of stuff. If you're ever in doubt about your employment law rights, pocketemploymentlawyer.ca is a great first step. There's contact there as well if you want to reach out further to Chris and his team and you also have access at that point to the severance calculator which does exactly as it says in the title calculate your severance quickly and accurately and over two million people have used this particular tool and gone wow my employer is ripping me off that's true so you want to check out the uh, severance calculator anytime you'd like on the show today we got lots to get through in fact we're going to talk about employment law red flags bring about a bunch of those with chris but first pal you've always got a a week that was something you've been working on what do you got yeah absolutely so this week i wanted to touch on a few sort of news stories at the top of today's hour um the first one had to do with this trend or at least something that's been happening a lot more recently um you know, employers are looking to save money by either dropping certain office locations that they have uh, or changing them in some way. And so this has resulted in a lot of situations where people have come to me and have said, you know, hey, Chris, uh, my employer is telling me I got to start working out of this building as opposed to this other one, or I'm I'm being told that I have to move or relocate in some fashion. Uh, Can my employer do this? Can your employer essentially force you to relocate to accommodate these changes that it might be making, you know, within its operations. And the short answer to that is no, you know, employers cannot generally force you to relocate, um, especially if it increases your commute time by a substantial amount, or um, if the move requires you to essentially uproot yourself uh, or your family. So it's going to, you know, a lot of times in these situations come down to, you know, how big is that change, um, as it does with a lot of changes. Uh, for example, if it only adds maybe 10 or 15 minutes onto your commute one way, you know, that's, of course, going to be seen as being less likely to constitute a big change. But on the other hand, if we're talking it adds over an hour onto your commute each way, then, you know, certainly you're going to have a much easier time arguing that this is a change of, of a substantial nature. Um, now, Aside from this general point, as far as employers not being able to force you to do this, there are some situations that may allow companies to switch your office location without necessarily breaching your rights. Um, For example, uh, if you sign a contract, you know, contracts come up in a variety of issues, but this is one of them where there might be something in your contract that allows the company to switch the location. Um, or, or it gives them some kind of uh, right to impose this relocation. Now, 
it'll come down oftentimes as it does to the wording of a specific clause in a contract. But that's usually one starting point is to look at the contract and, and see what rights are being given or, or being taken away potentially. Um, aside from the contract, there may be an implied practice within the industry or within the business to um, sort of have relocations happen. Um, ultimately, what it's going to come down to in most cases, whether it's between the employer and the employee, is what is the understanding between the two of you? What is there an understanding that it's possible a change could come? Is this something that is generally accepted, as I said before, or implied in some way? Um, so there are these exceptions or situations where employers may be able to do what they're doing, but there are also probably more situations where they can't. Uh, and I think that's why it's important if you're an employee and you're being faced with the situation of having to relocate, whether it's for legitimate reasons or not, you know, from the company's perspective, um, you're definitely going to want to talk to a lawyer and, and make sure kind of what your rights and options are before um say, just telling them they're not going to do it mm -hmm. or that you're going to quit or that, you know, this isn't right. Because that's another issue that I've come across in my own practice is people thinking just on at the outset that this isn't something that's permissible. They come to me and by then they've already quit or they've already expressly told their employer one thing or another. And it, again, it can just make it a bit more difficult to sort of continue on those discussions and maybe try to negotiate something or, or reach a, a middle ground of some sort. Um, Beyond... Let me ask you something, Chris. Yeah, Beyond this yeah. being part of a uh, – that's already been written into an existing employment contract that they have the mm -hmm. right to relocate, blah, blah, blah. If there's something not not in that nature of your contract, but they're asking <clears> you to do this or telling you to do this, and you're thinking, ah, you know what? I love the gig. Maybe it's not so bad. Is this something you could try and in writing tell them, you know what? I'll take this for a spin for a few weeks or a couple months. If it doesn't work, I'm not going to continue. Possible? Yeah, that is definitely possible. I mean there's always uh, a possibility to – like I say, kind of reach a middle ground, maybe test it out. I mean, this could actually apply yep. to a lot of changes. Like, for example, an employer might be changing the nature of your job. And of course, you don't want to outright say, I agree to the change if you don't. But in good faith, if you want to try out a change uh, to see if it'll work for you, then absolutely. Um, I think it'll depend, of course, on the change and whether something like that is feasible. But um, absolutely. And then at least that way, you can have potentially a little trial period uh, without it necessarily then forming a new term of your employment if that didn't exist prior. Um, on the other hand, you may also have the opportunity to tell your employer, absolutely not. I don't want to do that. That is a big change. And if you're right, and it is a big change, and your employer is still saying to you, too bad, so sad, this is what we're doing, take it or leave it. Now, all of a sudden, you're an employee who's in a situation where you may have been constructively terminated or dismissed. And you can potentially then treat that scenario as though you were dismissed and right. also get upwards of two years of severance too. So, you know, there's a lot of possibilities there and just for the reason why it's important to, I think, get some legal advice before you decide one way or another. And on that note, uh, reaching out to Chris and his team, by the way, one 821 5900 Again, one 821 5900 Also of email, right? Help at employmentlawyer.ca. What else you got going on, pal? Yeah, so there's other news um, this time mm -hmm. coming from Twitter um, having to do with layoffs. Uh, apparently, there's been a number of Canadian staff employees um, who have been let go. And the suggestion from the employer is that they're not owed any severance. They're not entitled to any severance. And, and this is specifically in the context of an employer who is foreign-based. You know, this is another question or issue that comes up a lot in my practice as far as, you know, people who, you know, let's say may work for a company that's based out of the U.S., right. um, but actually never step foot in the U.S. and do all of their work remotely from within, say, Ontario. 
Uh, and so they come to me and they wonder, you know, Chris, are my rights as far as, let's say, termination, are they going to be in line with U.S. law or, you know, is, is, is the Ontario legislation going to prevail? And I think generally speaking, you know, notwithstanding whether someone's actually based outside of Canada, like a company, the employment standards legislation, the laws, let's say in Ontario, would generally apply to someone um, who's working in Ontario for a foreign-based company if two main things are, are satisfied, either if the work they perform uh, is actually in Ontario and solely in Ontario, uh, or if they're in a situation maybe where they perform work both in and outside Ontario, but the work performed outside of Ontario is just a continuation of the work performed inside Ontario. So, so it can be a combination of the two, uh, or if it's just solely performed in Ontario, then there's a good chance that, again, even though your employer may be, say, U.S.-based or based outside of Canada, that it's the laws of Ontario that are going to govern. Uh, another, as I said before, with the, with the first topic today, uh, another issue has to do with the contract. A lot of times right. uh, in contracts, they'll sort of identify what the governing law is, what the jurisdiction is. It might actually say specifically that, you know, the laws are, are governed in accordance with those of Ontario's and not, let's say, you know, New York, for example. So that's, that's another place to look. It's not the be all and end all, but that's just another uh, area to look at, um, but yeah, it can be a bit tricky when it comes to the issue of someone who performs work in and outside of Ontario. Then, you know, what happens there is, you know, the courts will probably look at um, how long maybe they performed work outside of Ontario. Um, like there may be a situation, for example, where someone does work, um, you know, at, in a different province or, or in a different country for a number of years just prior to being let go. And that work isn't seen as a continuation of the work they did, let's right. say, within Ontario. And now all of a sudden, maybe a different law could apply, or at the very least, maybe the years that you put in while you were outside of Ontario won't be counted uh, for purposes of determining your severance or, or your overall tenure with the company. So it can get a bit more complicated depending on the situation. But I would say in, in a vast majority of cases, you know, where you are and, and the location you're performing work in is going to often be, um, you know, what laws sort of apply to your to your case. That's uh, the one interesting point you made there. Is that something that, say, you're you're working in Ontario or Canada for a U.S.-based company and their mm -hmm. employment contract that you sign, is that something they can contract themselves out of? Is you working on Ontario labor laws? No, it's – yeah, it's not as easy as that. You know, just simply right. having a contract that says, you know, let's say the laws of New York govern your employment, mm -hmm. but, you know, the actual relationship, again, behind the contract is one where you've only been situated in Ontario or you've only been right. situated exactly. in British Columbia. But yeah, like I say, the contract is not the be all and end all. Um, as much as an employer may like that to be the case, because we know that, you know, in many cases, US laws, for example, when it comes to employment stuff is not going to be anywhere near as favorable no. as that of let's say Ontario. So there are definitely situations where let's say US based employers who may not know the full extent of what Canadian law is versus, you know, US law, they may also just mistakenly think that this is the law that prevails over another. And so, yeah, definitely another reason why I need to talk to a lawyer and kind of get to the bottom of all that. I want to get to one of our points for the day before we take a short break, and that is employment <clears throat> law red flags. Number one, despite many, many stellar performance reviews, your employer puts you on the old performance improvement plan. How about that? Yeah, so a performance improvement plan can definitely be a legitimate way to deal with an employee who's not performing well. You know, if you haven't been doing as well as you should be, 
And again, your employer and or you think that a performance improvement plan has some basis or legitimacy, um, then then that's that can be certainly fine. And then you can just do what you need to do to work on, on improving and, and go from there. But the situation arises where you're put on this type of a plan. And as you've said, there, there's many stellar performance reviews that came in before that. Or there, there's no suggestion to say that you even should be put on the plan because there's no valid criticism or you might disagree with what your employer is saying there. And so, you know, what do you need to do in that case where you disagree? Well, you need to say something. And I've, I've said this on the show in past uh, episodes, but you need to say something. Uh, you need to voice your opinion. You need to put it in writing um, because if you don't and you just simply be silent, then the, the employer in that scenario may end up later on down the line relying on the performance improvement plan uh, and those criticisms as a way of letting you go for just cause. And, and again, as we know from, from having had this show go on for quite a while now, just cause is you know certainly not an easy thing to accomplish for an employer. So again, if you're in a situation, you need to say very clearly in writing that you disagree, you send them an email, say something along the lines of the fact that you've been put on this PIP, this performance improvement plan, that you're committed to being the best employee possible, but this is what you disagree with. Boom, 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 Got boom, it. X, Y, Z. And then send that to your employer and, and go from there. But that's absolutely the very least that you need to do. Lots more of these points coming up. Employment Law Red Flags, that is right here the Employment Law Show. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. Alrighty, we're back at it. Employment lawyer Chris Justice is with us. Reaching out to Chris anytime after the show, you can do so. Get him hold, uh, get a hold of him at the firm, San Fever to Market LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in the country. How do you do it? One eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Help at employmentlawyer.ca is that email address. We're uh, working our way through the list of employment law red flags. These things are exactly that things you should be looking out for all the time in your employment life. Number two, your employment sold the business to another business or entity, and now that entity refuses to recognize your previous service with the employer, that could be a huge hurdle if you're a, a longtime uh, employee of the previous company, right, Chris? Yeah, absolutely. This is, this is definitely a big one. Um, so just backing up a bit, when mm-hmm. a purchase and sale actually happens, um, generally speaking, employees do not have an automatic right to get severance uh, from the employer who sold the business. Um, if, if as a result of the sale, you're out of a job, you don't have any work anymore with that, with that company whatsoever, um, then yes, you are going to generally be entitled to severance, especially if you're with the seller for a number of years. Um, however, if you're with the seller for a number of years and then the purchaser of the business, the one taking over ends up hiring you, you do generally inherit your service. Uh, so mm-hmm. whatever service, whether it's a week, a year, 10 years with the with the person or the company that sold the business, that's going to generally um, flow to the buyer um, that that's inherited, you know, typically. Um, however, uh, and this is this is kind of where the red flag comes in. You know, if if the purchaser of the business, the, the, the company that wants to kind of keep you on and, and keep you working, you know, they, they may try to um, 
make a statement to the effect of, yeah, we're not going to recognize your service. And it is possible uh, for that purchaser to contract out of any prior service you had mm. with the seller. So there is a possibility, again, you've been somewhere for 10, 20 years, you join a new company, you get let go maybe a week later. Um, you know, you may only get the severance that's, that's owed to somebody with a week or two or however much time you had with the buyer. And so it's definitely something you're going to want to look out for in terms of, you know, the employer's ability to contract out of inheriting that service. You know, they can, for example, have you sign a contract, uh, the buyer that is, that says, you know, you'll continue working for this company. However, we explicitly, you know, will not be recognizing any prior service you have uh, or you had with the seller. And, and the buyer may implement a probationary period of its own. So it's definitely possible, something you want to be aware of. Um, and, and that's definitely a huge uh, benefit to the buyer. Uh, and again, just another reason why the contract is so important, why you don't want to sign a contract, whether it's frankly being given to you by the seller or the buyer before getting legal advice, um, because that's a huge difference. You know, again, just having 10, 20 years in with the seller, getting let go a week into the, the buyer's relationship with you. Um, that, that could potentially be the difference yep. between you getting zero dollars and, and hundreds of thousands of dollars, depending on what role you had and, you know, what the compensation package looked like. Yeah, that's something I, I think, and you've said this before, it's complete, or mm -hmm. for the most part, it's, it's in some way, shape or form negotiable because there's no way if I'm a 10, 15, 30 year employee that I'm going to forego any sort of potential severance moving forward for someone, something that's written in a contract by a new buyer. Cause to your point, they may just be looking to hang on to you for a couple of months and boot you out the door and get out scot-free as far as severance. No way. I'd be negotiating it, that for sure. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Yeah, that's a, that's a brutal one. Again, you want to reach out to Chris after the show to uh, go over any of these talking points or anything else for that matter. No problem. You can always do it at one 821 5,900. Next one here, employment law red flags. After a few years in the job, your employer asks you to sign a new employment agreement. Now, let's let's clarify this. You're already working there, right? And you have been for a while. Then they say, hey, Chris, sign this for us. Yeah. yeah. And, and again, just like we talked about just a second ago in terms of the purchase and sale issue, you know, that's another scenario where you're being presented with a contract potentially to sign. Um, obviously, we've touched on the issue of, you know, recognizing prior service. But if you are uh, in a job, a few years on the job, as you say, you're being presented with a new contract to sign. Maybe you signed one before, maybe you didn't. Um, again, this is <clears throat> one of the bigger red flags that I typically come across. You know, everything's fine. There's no issue with your employment. And then suddenly this, this contract gets introduced. And the question is, why? Why are they doing this? You know, what benefit am I getting? What benefit are they getting? Um, there's typically a reason why the employer wants to introduce this contract because it's not going to be generally better for you. It's going to be better for them. You know, they're going to put in, in a lot of cases, in most cases, uh, terms in that new contract um, that will likely cost you a lot of money down the road. You know, wow. these, could be, these could be terms that limit your future severance entitlements, uh, as we've kind of discussed before with the, with the lack of recognition of prior service, or by just implementing a, a termination clause that attempts to limit your entitlements to say the bare minimum required. Uh, there could be terms in that contract that allow the employer to make certain changes to your job or to your pay uh, or to just various things about your job as far as, you know, going back to the relocation issue we talked at the top of the show. Um, there might be terms that just otherwise prevent you from earning a living after the company or affect you in some way after leaving that company. 
So these are all reasons why you as an employee want to be extra cautious uh, before signing anything. Because, you know, a lot of times people, in my experience anyways, will be focusing on, okay, are they paying me more money? Are they giving me Mm -hmm. an extra week or two of vacation? Are they, you know, giving me more benefits? You know, that's great. I love that. I want that. And then they just sort of forego or forget like the other, the other clauses, maybe out of ignorance, maybe not, but they're really focused on certain things over others. And they just need to realize that, um, you know, for any little benefit you might get initially, uh, you could be taking a huge hit, you know, as I say, later on down the line. So again, never want to sign without reviewing it with a lawyer, because there, there are a number of different ways. I've seen multitude of different ways that, that people can kind of affect it very negatively down the road. So if, if you come across some of these negative, uh, you know, things in this employment contract, and again, mm-hmm. reiterating the fact that you're already working there, so this is brand new yeah. to you as an employee, a lot of people are going to get nervous and say, I don't want to sign this, but what do I do? You, nothing, well, nothing going to happen to you. Nothing legally, they can't get away with it if they say, well, if you're not going to sign it, we're going to let you go. That's fine. They got to pay you severance, but you're not bound to automatically sign this contract, <clears throat> are you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of people, of course, will come to me and say, you know, I, I just want to keep my, my job. I don't want to lose the job. I'm willing to take mm-hmm. this risk or that risk. That's just really paramount to me. And, you know, at the end of the day, if that's your prerogative, then that's certainly fine. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Don't think that you're forced to sign it. And if you don't want to sign it, especially if it's, you know, representing a huge change to what you're used to before, because again, you might have had no contract before, uh, which is usually the best case scenario for a lot of employees, just yes. have a simple handshake. Um, but, but yeah, if that's not something you want to do, then yes, it is also possible the employer could let you go. But if they do let you go, as you mentioned, um, they're going to have to pay you severance. There's not going to be cause there. And if you don't have any terms of your employment at that time that would limit your severance entitlements, then at least you're going to probably be let go, uh, and, and receive your, your potential maximum severance entitlements rather than, you know, for example, signing a contract that limits those entitlements. And then, like we said before, maybe being let go shortly thereafter doing that. And now you're now all of a sudden held to these updated terms, which, as I say, can can drastically reduce the amount of compensation coming your way. So again, talking about, uh, yep, we're talking about employment law red flags with Chris here this morning. Another red flag is this, your employer says you weren't the right fit for the job and they try to fire you or they do fire you for cause or so they think. Yeah. So, so fortunately, at least in my experience, especially of recent times, I haven't found too many employers, uh, fire clients or potential clients of mine for cause just simply because they weren't the quote unquote, the right fit. Um, and that's good because as I said before, it's very, very difficult for an employer to fire somebody for cause full stop. Um, most times if, if an employer is going to go down that path, they need to, or at least should be making sure that they have real solid grounds because there are certainly scenarios where employers have alleged that they have cause where they have actually terminated someone for cause. And there wasn't anything anywhere near, uh, that would amount to cause. And then all of a sudden that employer is not only on the hook to pay severance, but potentially extra compensation for the bad faith, for the sort of cause position that it has that completely lacks merit. You know, I think it's it's perfectly fine for, for an employer to say that someone's not the right fit. Um, and that happens, I know, a lot of times, or maybe there's a restructure that happens, but that just simply isn't cause. That's, that's something different altogether. Um, cause, again, is reserved for someone who's committing the most egregious of workplace offenses, right. 
Um, and, and even then, when when something bad happens in the workplace, but it's through maybe negligence as opposed to it being a willful act or something intentional, even in most of those cases, there's no there's no cause. So there definitely are implications for both employees and employers if the employer decides to go down this path. You know, I've spoken about why it's not a good move for employers to make and sort of uh, the hot water that they can get into if they do go down that path. But it's also not good for employees, obviously, because if you're mm-hmm. let go for sort of cause on the record, you're trying then to get another job. You've lost your job. You're talking with prospective employers. You know, they're going to ask you what happened or what are the circumstances you're being let go and, and you may disagree that there's cause, but then you have no way of ensuring that if that employer calls your your previous employer, the one that says they did have cause, that they're not going to say they had cause or that, that they didn't have cause, right? You know, the employer might tell a potential person that's looking at you that they had cause, and then that could just screw things up too. Um, so that's bad for you. That's another reason why it's bad for employers, because that'll go towards the bad faith. Um, and again, you can be let go for almost any reason, as long as it's not outright discrimination or bad faith. But um, yeah, this issue of cause is just usually not a good path for employers to go down. And again, just another reason why you want to kind of get ahead of that as much as you can um, as an employee so that there aren't those ramifications later on. And so you can have an, uh, a lawyer step in and try to resolve that issue for you. Chris, what if, what if you let that one go and say, okay, fine, they fired me for cause, even though it's not right, but you let it go. Right. I mean, would that have implications as far as EI is concerned? Because now it's on, now it's in writing. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, if you, if you essentially, you know, even if you don't agree with it, if you do end up agreeing with it and just say, okay, I'm accepting, I'm just going to move on, forget about it. I mean, first of all, you're, you're kind of playing into the employer's hands. You're not going to get severance. Number one. Uh, secondly, as you say, if you kind of accept it and then later on go and apply for EI, well, service Canada is going to look into it. Usually they might ask the employer, you know, what the circumstances are, you're telling Service Canada, yeah, there's cause or whatever, and you you agreed to it at the very least, then that is going to affect your ability to collect EI. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. just another uh, potential impact down the road for you. Um, we'll get to one more only, of these. Yeah, sorry, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, I was no, going to say just, finish up. Yeah, I was just going to say, usually it's only in situations where there's a valid reason for cause or you've actually quit your job, um, you know, save not for reasons of being pushed out. Those are the only two main reasons someone get denied EI. And of course, you know, that's a huge effect on a lot of people. We will continue our employment law red flag chat in just a bit. Then we'll move on to human rights violations in the workplace as well. But we've got to take a bit of a break and we'll do that and come back with more. Reaching out to Chris in the meantime, 1-855-821-5900 and help at employmentlawyer.ca. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. That's a great idea. Beyond that, you can always reach out uh, at your leisure. Help at employmentlawyer.ca is uh, the way to do that. And one 821 5,900, uh, Sam Fury to market LLP. That is the firm Chris is with. They put together pocketemploymentlawyer.ca some time ago. It's full of information about employment law. You can learn lots just by going to the website. Even before the phone call to Chris, you also have access 
to the severance calculator uh, through pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. It does exactly what it's meant to do. Calculate your severance really quickly. And over 2 million people have tried it and used it. So feel free to uh, to do that anytime. Okay, one more of these employment law red flags, pal, before we get on to human rights violations. Uh, your employer says you're on an independent contractor. You get this all the time. And refuses yeah. to bribe you with any severance as a result. Why should I? You're a contractor. You don't work for me. Yeah, yeah. Like you say, this comes up a lot in my practice. Obviously, usually when uh, the employment relationship comes to an end, you've got the employer saying, yeah, we don't owe you anything. You're not an employee. Um, But, you know, an independent contractor is, of course, very different than an employee. And so often I speak with employees uh, who believe actually that they're independent contractors for for whatever reason, uh, and as well employers who believe that the individual is an independent contractor and not an employee and therefore not deserving uh, severance. And mm-hmm. in most cases, this isn't just simply not really the case at all. Um, just just sort of distinguish the two. And an, an independent contractor is typically someone who is in business uh, or doing business for him or herself. You know, someone who uh, is going to be gathering or collecting their own customers, managing their own expenses, hoping to make some sort of a profit. Someone who typically doesn't have regular hours, someone who usually works for a number of different companies. So they're not necessarily exclusive to just one one company. And just overall, someone who's more of a business person, whereas an employee, um, uh, on the contrary, is, is someone who works usually for just the one company, fixed hours, they're doing uh, the work under the direction of that company. You know, they're under a, a fair amount of control from that mm-hmm. company. They're not self-employed. They're not independent. You know, the, these are the typical hallmarks of your usual employee-employer relationship. And a lot of times as well in these cases, there tends to be some aspects of the situation that aren't really employee-esque, I'll call it. You know, like let's say, for example, someone has their own business, you know, John Incorporated. And they send invoices to the employer and the employer pays those invoices. Or maybe the individual is responsible for their own taxes. So th- so there may be one or two or three factors here where, you know what? Okay, that's not really typical of an employee-employer relationship, but it's not just those factors. You know, the courts are going to look at, you know, sort of a more fulsome picture, really go behind the contract if there is one and examine the relationship and say, okay, You've got a few things on the left here that are sort of contractor-esque, but then you've got maybe 12 things that are sort of standard in your employee-employer relationship. And that's in most cases going to end up resulting in you being determined from a legal standpoint to be an employee and not an independent contractor. Um, And it's very important, as I say, the distinguishment between these two, because on one hand, employee is going to get the protections of an employee. You know, you've got Mm -hmm. things like overtime, vacation, severance. Whereas an independent contractor, you know, doesn't get those rights. Um, And and as I say, this issue usually comes up around the time of termination. And again, is this another scenario where it could be the difference between you being entitled to nothing as you would be if you're a true independent contractor or again, you know, up to two years of severance if you're an employee. So even if there's a contract, as I say, and frankly, even if that contract says that you are explicitly an independent contractor and it, and it places that label on you, that's not going to be all, the be all and end all. Employers and employees need to know that, that there's going to be more criteria that come into play. And uh, again, just another reason why, regardless of which side you're on, you're going to want to get legal advice, speak to a lawyer on these issues before taking one action over. 
Yeah, we, we, you know, we often say as well, it's more than just writing it down on a piece of paper mm-hmm. saying, oh, I'm a contractor. I mean, the law doesn't doesn't work that way. Plus, I mean, even if you've agreed with your both of you are in agreement, <clears> you've shaken hands, say, yeah, I'll be a con. Yeah, sounds good to me. Let's do this. Even if you do that, it still doesn't make a difference. But there's also kind of that right. third middle ground to all this, isn't there? The dependent contractor, where, wherein lies the difference with that? Yeah. So, you know, as I was saying, there are some scenarios where uh, there might be some factors that suggest you're not your usual employee employer relationship. Um, and, and you may be a quote unquote contractor, but the law also says that if you're a dependent contractor versus an independent contractor, that as a dependent contractor, you're still going to be entitled to the rights of an employee. And the, and the reason for that is sort of in the, in the phrase dependent contractor you're very much reliant on, you know, that business to provide you with a means of income. You know, there's, there's sort of two main factors, I think, in general, that people need to understand are important when it comes to these issues. The first I mentioned, or, or I mentioned earlier, was exclusivity. So the more exclusive you are, um, the more likely what you're going to be either deemed a dependent contractor or an employee. And then the second main factor is just the element of control, going back to how much control does the employer have over you? Can they set your hours? Do they dictate what work you get? You know, do they dictate where you work? How, you know, just those, those means of how you work. Do they maybe provide tools to you? You know, do they sort of tell you to represent yourself as being connected with that company? You know, you might have a business card that says you work for ABC Incorporated, um, but, but ABC is saying you're, you're not an employee of theirs. So, um, all, all these things come into play and yeah, dependent contractors are going to get very much the same or very similar rights to an employee. Um, and that is a, a sort of, like you say, like a middle ground between the two that, that I think is important to highlight. Again, anytime you want to reach out to, uh, to Chris after this uh, show, you can and have a chat. We're just uh, lining up our first call for the morning here and we're going to uh, very shortly get into our discussion of, uh, of human <clears throat> rights violations in the workplace just want to move down to a quick email uh in between mm-hmm. that actually you know what i think uh i think we're almost ready if i get a name of this email oh pete there we go stand by i think uh, i think pete's ready great Let's get pete on the air there you go hey pete how are you good thanks how are you good good what's on your mind brother I got, I got a question about traffic violations and when it comes to driving in the workplace the example i'd like to use is say somebody gets a dui their license is automatically suspended for 90 days after 90 days, they get their license back by the ministry. They're allowed to drive, but they have a court date scheduled, say, for six months down the road. Can the employer keep you from driving in the workplace, hmm. even though the ministry's given you your license back while you're waiting to go to court? Well, I think if your license has been reinstated, uh, generally speaking, there shouldn't be any issues there. Now, if something happens at a later date, you go to court and that license ends up being revoked or there's some sort of change, then it, it would depend on how that change affects your ability to perform your job. You know, obviously, if there are certain requirements that you need or licenses or certificates that you need to do your job and you don't have those, whether at one point or another, then it's going to be, of course, easier for the employer to say that you're not actually capable of performing your job, uh, that, that maybe the, the contract or the employment relationship you have with that company has been frustrated. Now that that's generally a hard argument for them to make, you know, they may not just simply be able to um, end your employment on that basis, especially if the uh, I guess the suspension will say is for a temporary period of time. So I think it just depends like during what time are you unable to do certain things? 
And, and that will go to the reasonableness of whether or not your employer should accommodate you or should find other things for you to do, or maybe just have you focus on certain aspects of your work over others. But, you know, going back to your question, if, if your, if your license or whatnot was reinstated, then, then there shouldn't really be an issue, practically speaking. And if your employer is saying, well, we don't want you doing X, Y, Z until this court things gets clarified. There's a question about whether that's reasonable. And, and again, it would go to the impact it has on you. Because if that results in you having no work for six months while you're pending this court date, that's going to be potentially a huge issue. So I think it'll just depend on some of the circumstances there and how the employer treats the situation and, and sort of go from there. Well, there's, there's, it's not that there's not other work, but they want to give other work, but nothing that has to do with driving. So is so that a be, reasonable request on their point? Well, they're going to keep you employed, but you won't be able to drive pending your court date. Well, I guess one question would be, why is it that they don't want to do that? And is there any reasonableness connected with their decision to kind of hold off pending the court date? And then number two, what percentage of your job actually involves driving? Like how drastic of a change is this going to be for you? And, you know, potentially for how long? You know, I was mentioning earlier in the show that if an employer makes significant changes to the terms of your employment, that could very well constitute a constructive dismissal. So, again, if they're going to say, you know, half of your job was driving, but we're not going to let you drive for six months or more, and there's no legitimate reason or basis for doing it, then you could potentially argue a constructive dismissal there and, and possibly get some severance. Um, but it may also be a situation where you want to give me a call and we can kind of go through it in, in more finer detail and sort of at least give you an idea of all the options available to you and, and the best way to approach that. We will take a short break right now. And uh, Pete, I got you. Stand by. You're next up. We'll continue with the Employment Law Show. Stand by. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. All right. Back at it. Thanks so much for hanging on. Now, forget to, uh, to Pete. Hi, Pete. Thank you so much for standing by. What's How up? are you doing? Good. Just What's wanted up, to uh, piggyback on the previous question about loss of license. Mm-hmm. Um, there are circumstances where people uh, lose their license for medical, where there's not necessarily right. a. Uh, there is the potential at some point of getting the license back. Like if you if you have a seizure, uh, right. you lose your driver's license for X number of months uh, till proven that it's either just a single seizure that there's no diagnosis of epilepsy. If there is a diagnosis, then you have to be on anti-epileptic medication for a certain length of time to get your license back, like being seizure-free. So right. if an employer, let's say you have a commercial license, you drive a, a truck, and that is your that is your livelihood, can an employer then, would they not be violating, um, I don't know what provision it would be, but your you're you're discriminating against that person based on a health issue after your employment is already there like there's not is there not some further requirement of the employer to accommodate yeah like the the previous caller we were talking about suspension of license but there didn't uh, as far as i understood didn't involve any medically related issues I, i think that when it comes to that when when we're starting to talk about from a medical perspective i can't drive a truck and I'm a truck driver, 
Well, of course, generally speaking, your employer is going to have to try and accommodate those issues. And, and as you mentioned, depending on the, the degree of the impact it has on you, you might be unable or, or restricted from driving a truck for, for weeks, months, years. It'll just come down to the certain situation. So I think depending on how long that lasts, you know, there is going to be a point where the employer can say, all right, enough's enough. We've, you know, let's say we've held open your position for, you know, this amount of time and there's still no idea or, or suggestion that you're ever going to come back or that the licensing is going to be reinstated. So, so that could potentially happen, but that could be years down the road. I, I think if we're talking a situation where, you know, you're unable to drive for whatever reason for maybe some months or some weeks, um, and there's a suggestion that you will be able to come back and get your license reinstated or, or put back into place and then start driving that truck again, then yes, there is going to be that general duty course for the employer to accommodate you as best possible. Um, okay. If you're a truck driver and that's a hundred percent of your duties, and I'm not sure um, necessarily how your employer may be able to accommodate you by giving you other work, uh, that, that may be something that, that you and the employer could potentially negotiate. But yeah, they certainly uh, wouldn't be able to, let's say, for example, um, tell you that the employment relationship is over uh, or that they're terminating the employment relationship just because you've told them that you know, from a medical perspective, you can't do this for a few months, but that you'll be back afterwards. You know, that would definitely involve or bring into play issues of human rights violations, a failure uh, on the employer to accommodate you, um, because usually the employer has to do so up to the point of undue hardship. Like I say, there's a there's a line that might need to be crossed where they say, OK, enough's enough. But that that takes a lot of time. And especially if you're a bigger employer, there's going to be expectation that there's an even greater degree of accommodation uh, versus maybe a, a smaller mom and pop shop, so to speak. Okay. So is there a potential that they could then um, dismiss you without cause, but make you whole somehow <clears throat> with severance? Well, so technically an employer can dismiss you without cause and provide you with severance essentially at any time. But the problem then becomes, does any percentage, just any part of the reason why they dismissed you have to do with the fact that you were medically incapable of doing your job for a certain period of time? Because if even 1% of the reason why you were let go had to do with this issue, then even if the employer is saying we're letting you go without cause, you, you can still potentially go after them for that human rights violation. So they need to be very careful because the optics will look extremely bad for them if they terminate someone while they're off on a suspension due to a medical reason or, or at some point after that. So, so there definitely could be issues there for sure. Okay. The reason I was asking you, you're looking at, you're, you're saying, you know, a couple of weeks or a couple of months or whatever it is, there's provisions right. uh, with the MTO that if you're a commercial driver and you have been diagnosed with epilepsy, you need five right. years to your free. So, Right. And it, it is prescribed that way. So there's no way around that five years. It's one year for a one seizure. It's five years you're actually diagnosed. So right. other, obviously, if you've had, uh, you had a heart attack or whatever, there's other medical reasons to have that. But I know that it's hard and mm -hmm. fast for a commercial license for epilepsy. So I'm just curious. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to say that five years means you're without rights. I definitely think this is probably something we can talk about further off the yeah. show. Um, because, uh, yeah, there does seem to be a lot of issues, but I still think it's, it's beneficial if you speak with, with me and uh, we can kind of go through all the steps in, in greater detail. 
Thanks, Pete. That's the way we're going to leave it for today. Reaching out to Chris now that we're done. It's one 821 5900 Help at employmentlawyer.ca. We'll catch you next time. The Employment Law Show. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.